welcome to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. It's good to be up here again. It's a huge privilege to just get to talk with you guys about Christ and his word. Um, As you guys know, we're in the book of John, or maybe if you're new, you don't know. (laughs) We've been in the gospel of John, and it's just really been a sweet time to really just see Jesus and his work. Um, And we're going to be in John chapter 12, verses 27 through 43, building off of what Alex was talking about last week with the triumphal entry, um, these Greeks seeking Christ. And if you're taking notes, I've entitled this message, God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. Um, It's not an original title to me. I actually got it off of a book that I thought, (laughs) in terms of theme, really encompassed this. Um, But the main overarching point as well that I want you guys to really have in the back of your brains before we read the text and really dig into it together is that a disciple of Jesus loves the glory of Jesus, right? A disciple of Jesus loves the glory of Jesus. Of Jesus, and I just I think that really encapsulates the themes that we're going through in this message because there's various different perspectives that we're going to see on the way that God's glory is on display. All right, so let's read the text together, and then we're going to jump right in. Uh, John chapter twelve, John chapter twelve, verses twenty-seven through forty-three. Hear the word of the Lord. Now is my soul troubled, and this is Jesus speaking. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered, and others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he spoke of his glory, or saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So, as you can, you can see thematically, we're dealing with a pretty weighty and complex section of John's gospel, right? It's a glorious one, but it's, there's a lot of moving parts. And that last adjective, though, of, of glorious, as you could have guessed, like I said, from the main point, this is, this is the main driving element, if you will, of, of this section of John's gospel. And John, he's got, he's got much to say about glory throughout his writings in general, general, right? If you've read 1 John, for example, or 2nd or 3rd. But this section is powerful in that 
how he displays God's glory in Christ is that it's, it's, it's a multi-layered or multi-dimensional in its scope. And, and sometimes that's just how things work, right, when it comes to things being fully considered for all that they are, right? Think of, think of a prism. Who here knows what a prism is, right? Yep, that it, for, for some it just, what's amazing in that, a prism is just a simple, clear triangle, if you will, right? But when light is, refra- is refracted through it, it's a multicolored rainbow emerges, right? It's just a simple, clear triangle, but then when light goes through it, a, a rainbow emerges with all these beautiful colors. And although light it, it has all these colors, we can't see them until we have a special tool and have a different perspective. And in the same way, we can often overlook the complexity and, and the beauty and the nature of God's glory. And, the, and, and God's glory in this section has multiple different angles. There's a sacrificial nature. There is a sovereign nature. There is a divisive nature. And those who are Jesus' disciples, they may wrestle and have to think through how these themes work together. But they will in the end, and despite any limited knowledge that they have, they will love the multifaceted nature and dimension of God's glory. And they'll seek after it. And this is, once again, why I think it's the driving theme here. So if you're taking notes once again... This is going to be our first point, the sacrificial nature of God's glory in verses 27 through 36. The sacrificial nature of God's glory. So look with me at verse 27. Let's just notice something right off the bat, right? Jesus, what does he say? He says his soul is troubled, indicating his genuine humanness, right? He's indicating a genuine humanness over the suffering that he's about to endure, Right? He's, he's aware of the pain that he's going to experience on the cross and, and being whipped and suffer for God's people. He's, he's aware that, you know, he, he's fully God and he has power over death as the God, but as the God man, he, he obeyed God's law perfectly and he has to suffer real pain to make atonement for the sins of his people. But what does it display, though, on Christ's part? It displays an obedience, right? Because he says, you know, Father, save me from this hour. What, is that what I'm going to say? No, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. An essential part of his obedience is this hour or this period of time of his suffering. This would be why Paul in Philippians 2.8, when he says that Jesus, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It all comes down to this period of time, right? This hour of suffering on the cross. And and when we notice something in verse 28, there's this mutual dialogue. Look at me at verse 28. There's this mutual dialogue between the Father and the Son, where the Son, he's, he's seeking to glorify the Father, and yet the Son is also glorified by the Father. There's this interchange here where Jesus' life, up to this point, was one of glorification and perfect obedience to God's law. And, and as one, though, that in his divinity, he's inseparably, don't let the term throw you, it's just that they are united to one another, Right? They're united to one another so that when one is glorified, the other is also glorified. Does that make sense? This, this would reflect Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 that we'll get to eventually where Jesus says, Father, the hour, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Right? So there's a mutual glorification. So we see that God is glorified in the suffering of the son. Amazing, right? Not only that, but there's this powerful instance of the Father audibly, think about that, thundering his voice, and he's speaking for all to hear. But what's the crowd's response? Misunderstanding, which is a, it's a frequent case in John's gospel. The frequent 
the people frequently misunderstand what's going on around them. The things that Jesus says, the controversial things that in their eyes Jesus does. And, and, and John, he records a further display of this, though, when Jesus then says that he's going to be lifted up. So we lifted up for the sins of his people. They even misunderstand God's point on such a fact as that. Guys, this is a, this is a crystal clear display of what Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 2.14 when he says that the natural man does not accept the things of God because they are foolish or, to him or they're folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because he's spiritually discerned. And he writes in chapter 1 that Jesus being crucified, the Christ being crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. They can't get past it. It's an obstacle, right? They, they look at the scripture and they say, we know, we know that in the law the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man is going to be lifted up? That doesn't make sense. It was there all the time. In other words, sin has blinded the hearts and minds of unbelievers to where they say, how can a, how can a first century Jewish carpenter be considered God in the flesh? What's so, what's so amazing about, you know, a man dying on the cross in public shame and scrutiny? Shouldn't we want someone that's more triumphant, right? But friends, this is, this is the message of the gospel. It, it, and Jesus' point in verse 31 32 where he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Look at me at verse 32. He says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And guys, the theology here is so rich that we could spend weeks, months, maybe even years discussing it, but we only have a, sh a short time, unfortunately. Um, but there are some few, there's a few things, though, that I want us to really focus on as we're going through this. First, Jesus being lifted up. Strange language, right? It's, but it's actually the fulfillment of biblical prophecy in two key ways. He's, in the first, he's actually, from an Old Testament context perspective, he's, he's acting as a banner or a signal, and, it, and it's... It's, he's being raised to where people can look and they can gaze and they can be drawn to and they can see him and they can be saved. And, and Jesus in John, in John chapter 3, uh, verse 14, maybe you remember this right before the famous John 3, 16. Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And so, for those of you guys that maybe aren't super familiar with it, the story behind that in the Old Testament was when God, God's people, they were rebelling against him in the wilderness. They were rebelling against him in the wilderness, as they often did, right? They were rebelling against him in the wilderness. And so God, he sends serpents to bite the people and poison them as a result of, of punishment and judgment. But he tells Moses to lift up a bronze serpent on a wooden pole. And that if anyone looks or gazes at the bronze serpent, they will be saved and healed from judgment. Think about that connection, guys. In the same way, sinners, they look to Christ for relief from any sort of judgment from God, seeing him there hanging on a wooden tree. And they are, he's treated as a sinner and yet without sin. And by their gazing upon him and trusting him, they are saved. In the same way that if they trust the words of Moses to, to look at the bronze serpent on the wooden pole, they'll be saved from the judgment of the serpents. And by this, Jesus, he not only judges the sinful world, in the exposure of sin's necessary condemnation, right? But he also judges the delegated ruler of the world, Satan. Now, we can't go into this too in depth, but Paul would point us in Colossians 1.14. He would say that Jesus' death on the cross did this. It canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. 
Think about that. Once again, the very stumbling block for the Jews was Christ being crucified on the cross. How, how can this man be triumphant? He's dead. But Paul just said, no, it was actually Jesus being nailed on a tree that proved he was triumphant. There's this irony where Satan's greatest victory was actually his greatest defeat. Think about that for a second. For believers in Jesus, this means that we are actually freed from any sort of condemnation of sin if we believe in him who died on the cross in our place. And that the debt that was owed, Satan has no grounds to condemn us before God at all. As Christ is hanging on the cross, I'm sure he probably thought, aha, this is the one, this is it. Like, there's no hope for them. But once again, it was actually his defeat. Jesus has won, right? And so we'll still, we'll still wrestle with sin, but there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of his sacrifice, right? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord is what Paul writes. So how does God do this through Christ, though? This brings us to the second fulfillment, to draw you back to that prophecy language, the second fulfillment here. And we have this idea that I just want to pull up for you real quick. We have this idea that Jesus, he's being, he's being lifted up, right? And he's drawing all men to himself. And, but I, I want to say something real quick, though. This drawing all men does not mean universalism. It doesn't mean, that, however, it, it, it doesn't mean that Jesus, when he died on the cross, that automatically just because he died, when he's saying, I'm going to draw all men to myself, that every single person is saved. No, Jesus, he's speaking of himself when he states very clearly, think about this in John 3.18. Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever doesn't believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Are you tracking with me? So, so what is Jesus getting at then when he says, I'm going to draw all people to himself with that phrase, all? Once again, he's fulfilling Old Testament expectations that God's Messiah will save people from every tribe and tongue and nation and ethnicity and graft them into one people of God. So it's not all without exception, it's all without distinction. Listen to Isaiah 11, verse 10, written, check this out, 700 years or so before Jesus lived on the earth. Isaiah writes, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal, as a banner for the peoples, of whom shall the nations require, or inquire, rather, and his resting place shall be glorious. The root of Jesse, guys, is Jesus, the son of David, to get, catch you up to speed with some of that Old Testament prophecy. And David is the son of Jesse, right? Jesus, he's, he's on the cross as a signal, a banner that is lifted up. And what happens, right? The nations, they inquire of him. They look for him. They, they gaze upon him. They find their rest in him. And how does Isaiah describe all this? Glorious. The nature of God's glory is seen in Jesus' death saving sinners. And this has, it's actually been proven already, right? If you remember last week, if you've got an open Bible, look with me at verse 21 of chapter 12. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. In verse 20, it says that they were some Greeks. And they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. You guys catch that? That sinners, they need to look for Christ to be saved. And the Son of Man being lifted up, he's going to draw both Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile to himself by being lifted up. And this is already happening, <laughs> as we saw in verse 20 and 21. 
This is why in verse 35 through 36 then that, you know, sinners, they need to look to Christ for their relief. But Jesus tells those around them, right, those who misunderstand him, he tells those around them that they need to believe in the light and walk in it while it's there. If not, they will be overtaken by darkness. Guys, we know from John 8, 12 that Jesus himself, he is, he himself is the light of the world, right? Right? So what's the point that Jesus is making? In simple terms, guys, he's making an offer of salvation to those around him. He's, but the question, though, that we have to ask ourselves, though, is, what is what's the walking he's referring to in this context? What, it's a call of obedience, but to obey what? To obey the call of the gospel, which is to believe. In, in other words, verse 36 explains grammatically verse 34. Are you catching that? So, and this is finally brings us to our applicative point in this section, which I know is kind of long. Friends, to, to obey the gospel is to believe it, to receive it, to, to rest in it, to place your hope, your confidence, your eternity upon it, to cast yourself at the feet of Christ, asking for forgiveness for your sins, knowing that if you come, he will never turn you away. Think about that. Every single excuse that you probably have thought up in your brain of why you won't come to Jesus, it's not going to work. He will never turn you away if you come to him. But friends, we need to see the necessity of being saved though, but saved from what, right? Jesus says in, in verse 35, walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you, right? The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going, so let's just be crystal clear. Unless you believe in Jesus, you will be overtaken by darkness. That's what he says. And the idea of overtaking here, it's this concept of being obtained or, or, or in possession of something. Darkness will possess you. Think about that for a second. Darkness will possess you, will overtake you. And as a result, you will be deceived into not knowing where you're actually going. Um, me and Emma, we have, a, we have a house now, which is great. And... The thing, with, the thing with our house is it was kind of built in like in the 20s. And the bath, so it's a two-story house. And the bathroom is on the first floor next to the kitchen. But our bedroom is upstairs. And so if you have to go to the restroom in the middle of the night, you got to go walk down these stairs, you know. And it gets dangerous because if you don't turn on the light going down the stairs, you're tumbling and that's game over. You know, you don't know where you're going. I've stubbed my toe pretty bad a couple times. Um, like, that's, that's what happens, right? You, you, you don't know where you're going, and then it smacks you. It surprises you. Um, guys, in the same way, listen to me on this. People who don't respond to Jesus by believing in him alone for salvation, they will be in darkness all their life. And then one day, that's it. And they will wake up, and they will face their maker. And they will be without excuse, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. And, and that darkness that blinded them, it will carry them into an eternity of judgment for their sin. It's like, it's like when an unbelieving celebrity dies, you know, and the, the news talks about it. And they say, yeah, you know, he was a good person. He's in a better place now. Thank goodness for all the, you know, the music they wrote and stuff like that. Is that true? Friends, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All deserve judgment. And all people, no matter your ethnicity, your background, your history, must believe in Jesus 
in faith and repentance, or you will suffer darkness of eternal judgment. And as Jesus says here, the light is among you a little while longer. For his audience, friends, he's, he's referring to his physical earthly presence. For us, this refers to the gospel being presented before you. For some of you, that's this very second. If you do not believe in Jesus currently, understand something. You will not always have the chance to. That's the theme that Jesus is getting at here. There's some of you that maybe drove here from a while back. You know, maybe you, it took you like an hour to get here. We saw that last week. Um, the sobering reality is, we don't like to talk about it, but the sobering reality is, is that there's no guarantee that you're going to make it home tonight. There isn't. There's no guarantee. But friends, Christ's call is that whoever would believe would be saved from judgment. And, and they would experience eternal joy. But believe while you have the chance, yes? Like, this, it, believe while you have the chance. And, and this brings us to our second point, which, if, once again, if you're taking notes, it's the sovereign nature of God's glory, right? So we have the sacrificial of God's, uh, nature of God's glory. Now we're in the, the sovereign nature of God's glory versus the second half of 36 into 41. Look with me at, at this passage here. We're dealing with a heavy section where, where John comments on why people are not believing in Jesus. Friends, many times in the Bible, we are often caught with a hard-hitting reality, right? God has complete authority as to how things in our life pan out and as to how things after our life pan out. And that includes Jesus' ministry. Notice here in the second half of verse 36, what happens? Jesus, he departs and he hid himself from the crowd and, his, and he hides his true identity. But this has happened before, actually. Right, if you're familiar with the book of John, in John chapter 2, John records that many believed in Jesus' name. And they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows the sinful heart of men better than anyone. He fashioned it. Jesus knows that just like today, people will say, that they will believe in him because they want God to make them happy or healthy and, and wealthy. They, they want to be in with a certain crowd. They want, God, they want God to serve their wants and their desires. And they say, oh, you know, if, if I believe, God owes me something. Friends, God owes you nothing. He owes me nothing. And naturally, we only deserve judgment because outside of our, our self, because unless we are born again by God, the Bible would say we actually naturally hate God and are enemies of him. Theologian Jonathan Edwards said something really punchy that <laughs> woke me up a long time ago. He said, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. This is an astounding reality, guys. God is actually, believe it or not, he is completely within his rights to punish sinful humans as the judge of all the universe. He is within his rights to do so. And we see this in this section of John 12 as well. Another sobering reality, right? God is actually with, completely within his rights to pass over sinful humans who deserve judgment by not granting them eternal life and leaving them in their sin. We're not, we're not comfortable with that, right? We, we encounter verses where, you know, in verse 40, who has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart that I would heal them. And John saying that this would be fulfilled. 
But guys, John writes in verse 37 into 38 something that flies in the face of every arrogant human notion of, you know, we determine our destiny. We're, we're the captain of our souls. What does he say? They still did not believe in him so that, once again, the word spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. Let that sink in for a second. The unbelieving Jews, they don't believe, in Je- they don't believe that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, which is that first Old Testament quote. And they don't believe because the, 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 the decisive denominator is God's sovereign decree. Are you catching that? Now, obviously, once again, this is a sensitive topic, but I think it would be helpful for us to engage with this on a biblical level and then a personal level to really harbor some of the necessary implications here. Biblically, what do we know? Psalm 51.5, David says, In sin did my mother conceive me. Romans 3.23, Paul writes, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He writes in Romans 6.23 that the wages, what is earned from sin is death. And he says in Ephesians 2.1 that outside of Christ we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Who's here seeing Princess Bride? They're not mostly dead. They're dead dead. They're all dead. Right? And then he actually says this too in, in John. He says as a result... In John 3.18, unbelievers, they loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In other words, as a result of all that, people don't want God naturally because they're of their own sin hardening their hearts and wills. And this shows up by either vehemently despising any idea of God or, or, or seeming indifference of him. And what do both scenarios show? They show a lack of understanding of their sinfulness and their their need for a savior. In other words, people, they have, they've inherited a hard heart from being born in sin, and they further harden their own heart by their own active sin. There's this interesting illustration that Paul uses in Romans chapter 9 where he talks about uh, a potter and its clay. He's talking about the Lord being the potter and clay, and he is, he's free to fashion the clay as he wills. But think about it this way. Any of you guys ever done pottery? What happens when you leave clay alone? It naturally hardens by itself, does it not? In other words, if God didn't do something with that clay for honorable use, it would stay that way. Guys, and and, and those in verse 40, they're unbelievers who have already hardened their own hearts. So in God's wisdom then, because remember the context of this passage is Jesus' crucifixion, right? His saving work. Scripture is clear that God, he sometimes purposes to allow further hardening to continue for the sake of his own will being accomplished. In this case, Jesus' crucifixion. But hear me on this, please. God desires to save sinners and has sovereignly sovereignly decreed to do so through the gospel. And God, he, what does he do? He uses the gospel to draw those whom he's chosen for salvation. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us salvation, and yet, Because of his great love, he has actually chosen to save according to his will and purpose. Notice Jesus' own words in John 6. This is an amazing, just notice this taxonomy. He says, no one can come to me, in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But he also says prior in verse 39 and 40, and that this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given to me, but I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, notice, 
who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So what's the conclusion? What's the logic there? People only come to Jesus as the Father draws them to him as a gift to his Son. And the result of that drawing is belief in eternal life. So friends, the reality is if you believe in Jesus today, if in this very moment you can also say you believe in Christ It's actually because the Father has chosen to specifically and personally draw you to himself and present you as a gift to his son. Think about that. Has anyone ever shown you that kind of love? He caused you to gaze upon his son, to, like the bronze serpent that we mentioned earlier, right? And to, and to trust in him for salvation. This was all God's will for you. If you can say that you believe in Jesus, consider two things that one writer brought up when we're dealing with this subject. Broad, broadly and personally, right? Broadly, the emphasis to be made is not, you know, maybe you've heard this question. It's not why doesn't God, sa- God save everyone, Right? Rather, the real question is, if we're really as jacked up and evil and twisted and wicked as the Bible says we are, why has he chosen to save anyone? Personally, friends, the emphasis to be made is not to look inward and constantly perpetuate and ask yourself, have I, how, how do I know if, if God has chosen to save me? How do I know? But rather, have I believed in Jesus for salvation? Have I staked my attorney on him? Guys, in both cases, our focus is not, you know, predestination is hard to swallow or understand how can it be, but rather amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's the focus. Objections, you know, they come up against this, and it's extremely comforting, though, at the same time, guys. Puritan L. Nathan Parr once said, your unworthiness, you know, it may dismay you. It may depress you. But remember that your election depended not on your worthiness, but on the will of God. If you're a believer in these chairs, friends, this means that God in the corridors of time, he saw your sin with eyes wide open. He saw your wickedness. He saw what you did last night. He saw what you did last week. He saw your rebellion. He saw your waywardness. He saw all of that. And because he loves you, he chose to save you and unite you to Jesus If you are a believer, he has adopted you as one of his children and he's caused you to have faith in him and that he will raise you up on on the last day and to find peace and rest in Christ. And think about this. This gets me through a lot of tough times. Physically and actually embrace Jesus at some point. Think about that. See the, the holes in his hands, the scars that he bled for me. In spite of myself, And if you're not a Christian here, there's two realities occurring right now at this very moment. In the first reality, maybe you hear all I'm saying and you feel your heart tugging a little bit, you know? Right? Maybe, maybe, you know, you know you're a bad person. You don't know all the theological lingo that you hear going on, but you know you've messed up. And, you know, this Jesus guy, he sounds like he's my only hope. Friend, if that's you, then come to Jesus. Don't wait any longer. He promises that if you do, he will never turn you away. Remember what he said? All who come to me, I will never cast out. Maybe you've been casted out by other people, but Jesus will never cast you out. Why? Because you coming to him means that the Father gave you to him, and he's not going to turn away his Father's precious gift. 
Like, think about that. In that scenario, it's not even completely about you. It's actually, you are a gift from the Father, and he's not going to throw that away, right? And in another scenario, though, maybe in your mind this all sounds like a sham, right? Maybe your friend just invited you to a 20s event because, you know, you guys are homies or something like that, and he just said, hey, you want to come to just hang out with a, bu- a bunch of other young adults? We have a good time. We play games called, like, Ikea or Nah or whatever, Friend, if that's you, then please, (laughs) I'm begging you, please turn from your own pride and dark self-deception. See your sin. See the path that you're on. See where you would go if you died in your sleep tonight. And then see Jesus on the cross. See him on the cross, the Lamb of God who takes the way of uh, the sin of all who are his and place your trust in him. He's all you got. He's your only hope. He's your only freedom. And friends, this brings us to our final point as we close this section together. The divisive nature of God's glory. The divisive nature of God's glory. All right, so in the first point, we saw the sacrificial nature of God's glory. Second, we saw the sovereign nature of God's glory. Now, as we close, we're going to look at the divisive nature of God's glory. Verses 42 through 43, look at it with me. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And friends, we see in verse 41, though, to back up for a second, that Isaiah, he actually saw Jesus, right? He saw Jesus, the Lord of glory, back in his vision recorded in Isaiah chapter 6 in the throne room of God, where God's sovereign plan is revealed to him. And John tells us this, stating that, Jesus is very much present in the first half of your Bible. (laughs) He's very much present in the Old Testament. But thematically reminded once again of this sobering fact. Loving the glory of God is a pretty divisive thing. We see in verse 42, right, that there were were Pharisees and authorities that, you know, they apparently believed in Jesus. Right? And and this was genuine with some men, right, like Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and Joseph of Arimathea, another, another Pharisee. But we also see this tension here by John's record. He says, check this out once again, look with me. Fear of the Pharisees, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And to confess here, guys, in the original text is to openly, it's to openly acknowledge. And, and love here is, in, in context, it's referring to them retaining their status, retaining something that they highly desire. They desired what? The glory, the, the approval, the praise, the condemnation, uh, the, the commendation of men, not that of God, right? And there's two types of people that this would apply to. First, it's hard to say, but there are false professors who show their false profession by refusing to openly acknowledge Jesus. For those in this category, they neglect, they scoff at Paul's exhortation in Romans 10, 9 through 10. If you you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So what's the result of their neglect? Jesus says in John chapter, or Matthew 10, 32 through 33, in the context of denying Christ during persecution, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. 
And I know immediately some of you are like, whoa, wait a second. I was hanging out with some people like a week ago, and I didn't share the gospel or whatever it is. Friends, there are, there are cases of believers who are truly saved, and yet out of fear, and yet out of sin, darkening and, 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 and blinding them, because we are, if we are believers, we are still wrestling with sin, that, that will lapse in this area. Think of Peter, right? What did Peter do? He denied Christ in public, not once, not twice, three times, and one of them to a servant girl. You're like, wait a second, Peter, like, you're a man, like, why are you afraid of this little girl that's just serving other people? Like, <laughs> personally, though, I, I pray for my own faithfulness of public witness, right, but I know how easily I can be Peter. I know how easily I can, I mean, if there's any apostle I identify with the most, it's Peter. Because he's just screwing everything up all the time. <laughs> yeah. Just like, that would be me. No, Lord, no, no, no. He's like, no, re- get behind me, Satan. Oh, man, okay. Um, guys, sin deceives us, right? It, it robs us of courage and assurance and boldness. Brothers and sisters, in closing, our prayer should be that, that Christ would keep us from such fear, right? That we would be bold as lions, right? That, that we would be willing to die physically or even socially for, for Christ in his name, right? We are, beca- we are in an age where Christianity is becoming increasingly unpopular. But understand this. Jesus' grip on you is far stronger than yours will ever be on him. Look at the case with Peter. He knew, Jesus knew that Peter was going to do that. And he said, but don't worry, I've prayed for you. Satan would have you, sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And when you are restored, restore the brothers. Imagine that. Friends, you will fall and you will fail at times in this life, but our encouragement is this, right, that Christ, he is our foundation. Christ is our foundation, not our own faithfulness. If our faithfulness was our foundation, we'd become Christians and then we'd, Screw it up an hour later. No one would be saved. Faith itself isn't even what saves you exclusively, narrowly speaking. Faith is merely an instrument. It's a vehicle that God uses to bind you to what saves you, namely Jesus' blood and righteousness. Faith may be strong, it may be weak, but they still receive the same Savior. And that gives you boldness to be unashamed, right? Knowing that no matter how much I will screw, I will screw up, Christ, he's got me. Faith in Christ may cost you your social life, your family life, your personal life, or even your physical life. But as Pastor John preached to us on Sunday, Paul models our response, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, right? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. So don't be ashamed of the gospel that that comforts you late at night when you're having anxiety. The, the, don't be ashamed of the God who saves you, the, the Father who chose you, the Son who died for you and rose for you and lived for you, and the Spirit who regenerates you and transforms you. Guys, difficulty, it will come. But you are safe. You are secure. So, so boast, right? Don't shrink back in fear. When, when persecution, when calamity, when difficulty, when sorrow, when temptation come, remind yourself not what you feel. Remind yourself what you know. Remind yourself what you believe. What you know. Ask yourself, right? Like, in those moments, what is my only comfort in life and death? 
And some of you, your, your, you know, your eyes just lit up because you already know where I'm going. But I am not my own. I belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. And it goes on, it says, in fact, all things must work together for my salvation. All things, not some things, all things. Why? Because... Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life. It makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Safe and secure, no matter what. That's good news. Amen? Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we are so thankful for your grace. We know that we don't understand your will um, as well as we, we wish. But, Lord, we know that even though we don't understand all things like you do, we can trust you in all things. Um, Lord, we are so thankful that Christ was lifted up on our behalf, that by your spirit you drew us unto him and saved us. Lord, and if anyone here doesn't believe, I pray, Lord, that you would, you would shine a lightning bolt of grace into their heart and help them to see their predicament and see that Christ is a, he is a sufficient Savior. Pray, Lord, that as we close in worship, as we go out into the night and the rest of this week, that we reminisce about how amazing grace is, Lord, how sweet the sound of saved a wretch like us. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy, for your word. We pray that you were glorified in this time. All those who pray Christ in your name.